Welcome to Sweden in Transition, the podcast that meets change makers in Sweden. In a world in need of urgent reinvention, they do or see things differently. I am Sonia Lehmann and today I meet Elvin Landeis-Sismadia. Elvin is a climate activist, now engaged full-time with Extension Rebellion. Today we will discuss about civil disobedience, its historical legacy, but also non-violent direct actions happening now in Europe and in Sweden. Hi Elvin, welcome. Thank you, happy to be here. In the intro, I say in a world in need of urgent reinvention, to your mind, what do we need to reinvent in our human society? Well, it's a very big question, but it strikes a very relevant chord when we're talking about the climate emergency. There is a lot we need to reinvent or maybe reimagine also, I should say, because something we need to have when we do this work is is a big vision of what our future could look like if we do make the changes necessary, if we do act in time. What we need to reinvent is the priorities of our societies and uh, not least our economic and political systems as they are functioning now because they are driving us basically towards extinction at the moment, us humans and all life on earth. We need to start over and we need to make really, really big changes to the foundations of society right now, the way we put profit and political power above nature and above the needs of humans and how economic growth is based on extracting more and more resources, which are finite. We have since long now been extracting much more natural resources than than we can in a sustainable way. Before we start, please introduce yourself and explain how you became an activist. I'm 21 years old. I think it's fair to say that I've always had a conscious like idea or appeal to change the world. I wanted things to be different and I saw myself as wanting to be someone who made things different as in better for everyone. I learned about the climate crisis more and more in my pre-teens and early teens. Since then, the situation has gotten so much worse, but also the consciousness and awareness has been raised. And I've come to realize how big this problem is and to which degree my life is actually threatened. We have to do something and I have to be part of that. And I'm going to make that work my own and I'm going to make sure that It's fun, but it has to be what's effective and it has to be what is necessary. What made your education? You say you became more and more aware of the climate crisis. How did it start? Was it your family? Was it at school? I think my family has always been quite aware around different social issues and climate change, of course, being one of the main, if not the main issue of the 21st century, you know, even 20 years ago, there was some some amount of awareness about it. I think my parents supported Greenpeace when I was young, and I kind of started following them on social media when I was old enough to start using that. And I think from there on, I've kept in the loop about environmental and climate news as a teen. Yeah. So now you're part of Extension Rebellion. Introduce the organization to us. What does it do? Extinction Rebellion is a worldwide climate activism movement. It exists in over 70 countries today. It's a new, it's a young organization. It was born in the United Kingdom in 
2018. It's about three and a half years ago now. It's based on many years of studying social science, what we need to do to get our societies to rapidly change in big ways. The answer that the founders of Extinction Rebellion came up with was that the quickest way, according to the research that we have, is through massive civil disobedience. And by massive civil disobedience, we mean thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of people on the streets openly opposing the current systems, willing to self-sacrifice to an extent and like be willing to be arrested, for example, maybe even risk going to prison and kind of standing for that and saying, I don't support the system. This has to change. My life is in danger. My children's lives are in danger. Life on earth is at risk. And I will put my body in the way and I will risk my freedom and liberty for that cause. And that has to happen at a massive scale. It can't be 50 people doing an action and getting arrested. That can raise a bit of awareness if you're lucky. But we're talking about mobilizing around 3% of, say, a population in any country. But important to the strategy, I should just add, is it's not everybody. It's a large minority. So we can and we must be more radical than the majority population, the mass but we need to be smart enough and appealing enough to attract a very, very big minority of support. Mm. And that's based on historical landmarks like civil rights in the US or Gandhi in India. Do, do you get historical examples as a source of inspiration? We need to talk about these examples because they're the examples that lots of people recognize and know about. It's very good for argument's sake because everybody today likes Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement and what they did. And at some point, they were not popular, or many people didn't like them, and many people thought they were way too radical, etc., etc. And what they did was civil disobedience. You also mentioned Gandhi, who pretty much everyone has heard of, and the suffragettes in the UK voting rights for women, nonviolent direct action, which is a slightly different term, but it also has to do with taking action in a nonviolent way and protesting in different physical ways. These are the examples that Extinction Rebellion uses. With that said, we live in a new era. We're not in the 20th century anymore. This is a global fight for all of humanity against a problem that is caused by all countries, all governments. We can't really just take something from the past and apply it to the present. So we need to think smart and we need to be adaptable. Uh, it's not as simple as saying, oh, this worked then, it will work now. But all this social science points to this being our, our best chance as far as we know. Historical examples are the way to legitimate the action now. Looking back at history now, of course, everybody acknowledged that uh, it's right for women to vote. Uh, black and white people should have the same rights, etc. You mentioned um, social science. Can you tell us the main learnings from there? Yes. First of all, nonviolent civil disobedience on a massive scale has, I think it is somewhat of a 50% success rate, which is way higher than uh, petitions or voting or 
you know, lobbying politicians' campaigns or all of these other legal and conventional ways of making change. And the argument also from Extinction Rebellion, which I would really emphasize, is that the climate emergency is this huge, huge threat and we're still underplaying it and we're still not acknowledging it. That's understandable because it's big, it's scary, it makes us feel small and helpless and, and hopeless. But if we, for just a moment, stop ignoring the scale of the threat, then we realize that it's not proportionate to just send an email to a politician or even do a peaceful legal march. It just does not respond to the scale of the problem. We need sacrifice because sacrifice shows that the issue is important enough to sacrifice for. And that wakes people up. Uh, so that's one part of the social science. So the social science is basically that massive civil disobedience has a much bigger impact than other conventional forms of uh, trying to bring about change. And like I said, it's because of the sacrifice. It's also because it is disrupting society. It is disturbing. People are confronted. There are climate activist movements that focus on, for example, shutting down coal mines temporarily, which is important and leads to big, important political discussions, etc. But Extinction Rebellion has a strategy of being on the streets, right where the people in power are sitting but also where like most people are and are going about their daily lives. So when people are interrupted, when you're sitting in your car on your way to work, or even if you're sitting on the bus and then you're not getting to work, you're stuck in traffic because there's like, this huge road blockade, you are forced to, to think about the situation. You're forced to confront the climate emergency in a way that you don't have to if you just read in the news that a coal mine was was blocked for three hours. Our idea is to force polarization. We need everyone to say, okay, I stand for this or I stand for this. I'm for civil disobedience or I'm against civil disobedience. I'm for action on climate change or I'm against action on climate change. Because if the majority of people are kind of in the middle with no political stance, then there isn't the, the friction that is always needed for change to happen. So disruption, because it makes normal people have to confront the situation, but also disruption because it becomes a real threat to the power and to the moneyed interests. Because people are actually losing money when we are disrupting stuff. And that is important because politicians and corporate leaders are not going to respond to people standing on a square legally protesting because they don't need to. But the politicians, they have to confront when we're kind of trying to prematurely shut down society. I'm actually not asking for much. I'm asking to sacrifice some potential freedom, but mostly comfort. But people tend to kind of slide back into comfort. And I think that is problematic because once things get really, really uncomfortable in this part of the world, it will be much too late to do anything about it. And how do you interact with uh, Fridays for Future? Fridays for Future is, at least from the beginning, a concept of civil disobedience, because it's about striking from school in a country where you are legally bound to go to school. 
not going to school is a way of going against the law for what you believe in. So Fridays for Future is interesting because it's actually the concept is based on civil disobedience from the beginning. People in Sweden don't like conflict. They like consensus. So do you think it's particularly hard to mobilize people here in Sweden around civil disobedience? Or actually, no, you have people ready to take action here as well. The beauty about Extinction Rebellion is that all these people with different backgrounds, different ages, different fields of work are coming together and also non-political people. The mass of people actually don't see themselves as very political. If you actually talk about the truth about climate change, which the politicians are still not doing, and the science world is still very shy with, they're not hammering on these killer facts of we might actually have mass starvation, for example, even in Europe, if we just get some of these really, really dry summers in a row that are a result of climate change and global warming. When you actually tell ordinary people what's going on in a convincing way and what we need to do, people are more ready than you would think to actually do civil disobedience. And you don't have to be ready from the start, but if you know this is important, you will join the movement. And there are many different roles in Extinction Rebellion. Not everyone has to be willing to get arrested to be part of the movement. There are many, many supporting roles as well, and they are also really important and really needed. It's interesting. What are the killer facts that you use when you get confronted with people who are skeptical or just not aware? One that really scares me that I heard recently because I was listening to a Swedish radio show. So these facts are coming from the Swedish public service, actually, is that the deadliest natural disaster in kind of the Western world in modern time was this heat wave in the summer of 2003, which was really devastating in countries like France and the UK. It wasn't reported on much here in Sweden, so people might not know about it. Somewhere between 30,000 and 100,000 people died as a result of just heat. It was just too warm for these people to cope with. And that in and of itself is, of course, horrible. But this is estimated to be an average summer by 2040. What I want to ask then is, what is a heat wave summer in 2040? I don't want to know. And I'm only going to be 40 years old by then. It gets worse because this is also based on the assumption that global warming is linear. Like first it's one degree, then it's two degrees, then it's three degrees. And it's not. If we look at how global warming has gone, the curves are exponential. I don't know why scientists keep being so conservative in their estimates, but there keeps being all these tendencies in the scientific community to stay on the low side. So this is the best case scenario, what I'm talking about. And then there's also this fact that, oh, so when it's 40 degrees, 100,000 people die. And then when it's 41 degrees, 200,000 people die. And when it's 42 degrees, 300,000 people die. That's not linear either. There's a point where it just gets too hot and it doesn't work for us to sweat anymore. And then our bodies can't survive. For argument's sake, these are just uh, made up numbers. It's an exponential disaster. And we're just at the start of it. There was this IPCC report making the difference between the two degree and 1.5 degree scenario. And they were demonstrating that it's a big difference in terms of casualties, but also 
countries where you could not grow food anymore and migrations and extreme events. It's truly exponential. It's really, really, really terrifying. What the science community is doing too little of is connecting the dots to the, the social problems. Like it's easy to say, okay, by 2040, it will be too hot in these parts of the world uh, for humans to live. So that's scary. But it's like, okay, we could just move. That means that we can't grow food there. But not being able to grow food at all means that a while before it gets hard to grow food and a while before you get food shortages. Mm. So, you know, if you kind of trace back, we're just a couple of unlucky warm summers in a row from starting to have real food shortages mm. in Europe. Mm. This situation getting worse and worse in some part of the globe also explains conflicts. Yeah, this is like combined with all the growing fascism and, you know, it's basically set up for total disaster. Wars and nationalism and, you know, repeating the atrocities of, of the 20th century. Yeah, with all these climate problems, maybe we can handle them if we have really, really stable, cooperative, non-exploitive societies but you know that's not happening right now mm. so extinction rebellion also calls for for the strengthening of democracy as one of the really really important cores of our ideas because we think it's really important to give power back to the people and that people can make decisions but it's also you know it's really important that we think about how we not slide down this slope of, you know, climate fascism in the future. And and when I say future, I mean like five, 10 and 20 years from now. I don't mean 100 years. No, it's happening already. I think it's important to illustrate the type of action that we're talking about. What are the most impressive collective actions that the Extension Rebellion has led? Where Extinction Rebellion has had its greatest success is in the UK and particularly London with people traveling to London from all over the UK to partake in these massive civil disobedience actions. Basically, what they've done is they've tried to close down and disrupt the public life in the city for 10 days or two weeks. And doing that by having these big roadblocks in kind of strategic places. So for example, five different locations that together just create chaos. Blocking roads, blocking bridges, but XR has so many different styles. And for those who don't know, it's an autonomous, flat movement, which means that there is no hierarchy. All decisions are based on the different groups. And so you can get together with two other people. And as long as you act under the principles of XR, for example, that you're nonviolent, you can act in XR's name. There's also a lot of art in actions and... In Sweden, we've been uh, targeting banks this spring because the banks are financing the fossil fuel industry. So there are different art performances. We've also done this action in Stockholm recently. That was a big art performance, people sitting in fake blood. And we had like bees and a huge giraffe built to highlight the extinction of all these species and the kind of the blood on our hands. And maybe that we're next in line if we don't do something. So there are many, many different types of actions really bringing attention to this crisis in all these different creative ways and playing on emotions. In XR, we've realized that facts do not change people's behavior and facts do not make people 
change society. We need to get people to get in touch with their emotions. So it's all about disrupting, getting attention, creating the buzz on social media afterwards, I guess. What about the negative reaction? Are you scared that it may create the opposite, a rejection of the ecologist movement? No, I'm not as scared of that as I'm scared of what happens if we don't do anything or don't try these more drastic, radical measures. If things don't start happening in the coming year or two, if people are going to get even more radical. And in XR, we want to have a peaceful revolution before like an out-of-control violent revolution happens. But I think we get to be as smart as we can. We really value evaluation in this movement, and we need to keep doing that. We need to do an action and then see what the response is and then evaluate based on that. So if something is really not liked, yeah, then we should stop doing it or we should rethink or we should rethink our messaging. We need to be liked by some people. But I think it's really, really necessary that some people get angry. Things don't change unless some people get angry. Yeah, and you were saying earlier, it's all about creating this friction and polarization with people getting involved rather than just being passive. Yeah, and we, and we want it to be a friendly fight. Like you can be in a relationship with someone you love and then you get into a fight but it's good because what was happening silence wasn't gonna get resolved by people just being silent and the most abusive relationships can be the silent ones so we want to have the face-to-face -face fight where we like confront the problems in our world and do you have trainings let's say i join extension rebellion and i want to get involved in the actions in the street Are you going to tell me how to behave to remain nonviolent, even if the police is being a bit brutal with me? How should I do if I am arrested? How do you handle that? Yeah, we hold these nonviolent direct action trainings and we do it often and it is important. And I think it's also important that we keep even us who have gone to these trainings that we keep evolving and thinking about these things. And, you know, sometimes there is police violence or someone on the street is aggressive. And sometimes that isn't handled in a right way, you know, because we, we're also humans and we react sometimes, you know, react a little instinctively or something like that. And when those things happen, we also, you know, sit down and talk through it and like, how can we do things differently? So, yeah, we do have trainings And we should also always be training in our minds. These principles you were mentioning, a kind of a, a nonviolent code of conduct, and you have those trainings. Yes. And did you get arrested in your previous actions? I've gotten arrested once, which was last fall in Denmark, actually. I was glued outside of a bank, Danske Bank. We were protesting against its investments in all these dirty fossil fuels. We refused to leave voluntarily, so the police took us away. I got to sit in a police cell for three hours, I think, and then I was uh, released. So no painful memories. It's interesting because, you know, we talk about sacrifice and, and all of this. And my personal experience is that pretty much everything I've done as an XR activist has been really, really good for me. Like I felt stronger more confident, more connected with people, more in line with my values. It's been fun. There are all these lovely people that I wouldn't have met otherwise. And, you know, growing strong bonds, doing these things together. Of course, I was scared. 
I, I, I learned a lot. It was a, it was a growing experience for sure. In one of your latest Facebook posts, I read that police reactions were getting more violent. And for the first time, cars and trucks were getting close to demonstrators and pepper spray was used. I think we need to be prepared for things getting worse. The forces that are in power in our world right now, the corporate interests, the politicians, but the wealthy owning class will not give up everything that they build voluntarily. As we become more and more of a threat and more and more of a nuisance, the repression will probably get worse. We can't be too scared of this friction, as I was talking about. I want to speak about uh, what's happening in the north to defend the Sami land. Mm. I know you had uh, action there. Uh, give us a little bit of context. What's going on in the north? So the Swedish state has always been an oppressive colonizing force towards the indigenous Sami people. They've been pushed farther and farther north. Stolen land and the state and different companies are profiting off the natural resources that exist in the north, the indigenous people. And, you know, even the landowners don't have that much to say and they're always silenced so that resources can get extracted. You know, it's, it's the same story that just goes on everywhere in the world and has gone on for hundreds of years. Many people don't know that Sweden also has this like ongoing colonizing. So that awareness needs to be raised. So anyway, Sweden is cutting down trees and doing deforestation. We like to talk about how horrible it is with the deforestation in the Amazon, etc. But our deforestation, just as bad. And so the Sami people have been trying to protect nature for and preserve nature for, well, they have done so for thousands of years, but now it's becoming harder and harder, of course. The one profession that the Swedish state let the Sami people keep from their cultural history is the reindeer herding. So when we think of Sami people, we think of reindeer herders, but the reindeer are threatened from global warming, but also the reindeer are dependent on these lichen that hang down from these older trees. That's what they eat. And it doesn't grow on younger trees. So when the forestry companies cut down all the old trees and just plant the young trees, there's no food for the reindeer. So that's one of many things. But yeah, this is some of the context for the action. So what were the actions that you took then? We took an action with the Forest Rebellion, which is a branch of Extinction Rebellion. Together with Sami people, with Sami activists, we tried to block the logging of some older forest. Like there was this tree logging machine during the night when there wasn't any workers there. We, we built a barricade on the road so that they couldn't like get into their machine and start logging. And they also couldn't get their machine out. Yeah, this action and the forced rebellion is, is about uh, Sami people's rights, but it's also about that we need to stop deforestation and we need to preserve because of climate change, but also because of biodiversity. We have to keep all the older forests alive. It's not that we can't cut down any more trees, but the methods used, clear cuts, for example, has to stop. And we need to, to do sustainable forestry, which there are ways of doing. But I have to say, I've been really surprised because I had this image of forestry in Sweden that was really sustainable. Those actions, do they manage to bring the subject on the table and create a debate? 
There is a forestry debate going on now, and I think climate movement has done a lot for that to happen. The politicians have started debating about the forest, and there's been a lot of news. And this action was was by far the most covered that any Extinction Rebellion action has been in Sweden. Uh, This whole context is quite depressing. How do you stay motivated? What brings you joy? Taking action with other people. That's the like the number one and everyone will tell you like if you're sitting home and you're depressed like please get out on the streets with us because when action starts then hope begins. That's what Greta Thunberg says. When we gather on the streets and we're fighting for something together that brings me hope and also a lot of joy. And do you think COVID has helped or on the contrary people got back to their short-term materialistic and individualistic concerns? I think that COVID has taught us a lot, but we have yet to use that, like those lessons fully. And it has not been the big, great, grand wake-up call that some people were talking about in the beginning. The changes we need to make are much, much, much bigger than than what has been, uh, you know, proposed and thought about during COVID. But it does show that there's like an amount of rationality we can take and that governments can take in response to a crisis. I'm not saying the response to COVID was the best or even good necessarily, but there has been big steps forward in in like global cooperation and kind of thoughtfulness around not risking too many lives, etc. So if the climate emergency can get treated like a crisis at some point. Well, that was one other thing that we learned was that the climate crisis was never treated like a crisis. COVID comes and it's this small thing in comparison, but of course it's very directly acute. And then there are, you know, daily broadcasts about it, which has never been for the climate and will probably not be in the near future. At the beginning of the interview, you mentioned that it's important to imagine a future. What is the desirable future that you can imagine to make people dream and and want to change things. Let's say in 10 or 20 years time, how would we live? We would focus on what is important. We would cover our basic material needs. Then with the rest of our energy and time, we would focus on on what we wanted and what is important and, and most importantly, taking care of each other and, you know, putting humans before money and things. The necessary shifts that need to be done because of climate change have these really good side effects that that will make us happier, I believe. I always ask if you have a quote you want to share or a book. Yes. I was thinking since I'm here on behalf of XR, I'll just recommend This Is Not a Drill, an Extinction Rebellion handbook. It lays out all the arguments in detail about civil disobedience, but also the climate emergency that we're in and what we have to do and social science and, you know, everything that I just touched on. And each chapter is a different author. So there are different climate scientists and social scientists and activists and other people from different corners of society who have written this together. I can just read this quite beautiful part of it. It goes like this. Today's struggle for truth is that extinction and extermination are not inevitable. They are crimes against the earth and against humanity. And we can stop this crime by refusing to participate in 
and cooperate with this project of ecocide and genocide. Together, as diverse species and diverse cultures, we have the creative power to stop ex extinction through non-cooperation at every level, beginning with each of us, expanding the rebellion into ever-widening, never-ascending circles of interconnected life and freedom. This is the call of Earth democracy. This is our highest duty as Earth citizens. Thank you. If people want to join, what's the next big thing happening? You should all join Extinction Rebellion in Oslo for what we call the Nordic Rebellion, which will be this mass action of people from Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and maybe Finland, all going to Oslo. It's August 21st to 29th. You can check out the Facebook event if you type in Nordic Rebellion. We hope that it will be massive because we really need that now the Norwegian state is really like a rogue oil state of the world. You know, we're going there to protest against the inaction of all our governments, but there is a good point to really emphasizing what the Norwegian government is doing. It's it's horrible. They're handing out oil licenses for new exploration in the Arctic, and these licenses are until 2070. The world will, you know, burn down if Norway has its way. It's really close, and it's uh, often overlooked. Norway also has a good reputation abroad, but they're uh, the seventh largest exporter of CO2 in the world, actually, even though they're a tiny, tiny country. So let's all go to Oslo in August. Thank you very much, Elvin. Yes. That was a great conversation we had. Thank you for having me. If you like the podcast, please tell people around you and share it on the social media. You can also give some stars on your podcast app. And I'll see you in September for the third season. Bye-bye.